Good morning, church family. If you would please turn with me to the book of Jude for what might be the last time this year. We're going to look at the last two verses of this short but amazing epistle. Um, I forgot to turn this thing on. That's what happens when you get out of the pulpit for a week. There you go. Um, now, I just want to say this for you kids that are doing bingo. Um, I know I haven't been to the, to the treasure store in a while to refill the treasure box. So this morning, I stuck some ones in there. <laughs> so, so only take one, please. Only take one, okay? Don't start digging and grab them all. But, um, Ben, you're too excited, bro. <laughs> um, so while the kids are doing the bingo, we're going to do a quick recap of what we've been looking at recently. Um, we've only had one sermon on Jude in the last four weeks because I've been on vacation, and, and Bill and Dave have been filling the pulpit um, once and each, and um, Dave fills it more than the rest of us, but um, <laughs> I love you, brother. <laughs> uh, and, then, and then when Joyson was here, I preached on, uh, on 2 Kings chapter 7, and so I just want to remind you guys about what we previously discussed in the book of Jude. Okay, there's, there's quite a bit covered in this letter, you know, including a very long condemnation, it's like, like this, this rant against false Christians, which is... Uh, extremely important, but the, the stuff that I think is probably the most uh, applicable for us are the last few verses, which are split uh, into three sermons. We've already done two of them. Okay, Our last two messages from Jude focused on our part in living faithfully for the Lord, in our part, okay? The, the first was titled, Fighting for Faithfulness, Part 1, that's dealing with ourselves. We try to kind of unpack what, what Jesus' brother Jude is saying to believers uh, about, you know, that, that are in three different levels, they're at least professing believers, in three different levels of sin, you know, how to, how to handle that. And then it gave instruction um, in the next, by the way, it, it, if, if you don't know these, if you haven't heard these, I really encourage you, go on the website, go listen to the podcast. There's a reason that we keep up with those, okay? So um, go and listen. But uh, part two, I'm sorry, part two of fighting for, faith, for fighting for faithfulness was about dealing with others, Okay, and that was the, the three levels of professing believers. Part one was called dealing with ourselves. Okay, and that's where we try to figure out how we are supposed to build ourselves up, as Jude said, in the most holy faith. So anyway, um, it, I think it's important for Christians to recognize our responsibility for being faithful in this world okay, um, and, and to the Lord, to his word. But the main focus for today is on God's part in our faithfulness, which is so much more consistent than our part. Because we operate in our fallenness, but God operates in his perfection. So what is God's role in our faithfully living out the Christian life? We're going to pray and then we're going to talk about it. Okay, so if you would bow with me. Father God, I thank you so much for the blessing, Lord, of being able to preach your word to your people through the power of your spirit. Thank you, Father, for um, the folks that are here today. I thank you, Lord. I, we have quite a few that are traveling. Um, I know some of them uh, going to a funeral, Father. And just, I pray that you uh, help them to, um, to get through this time of grief. Father, I, I thank you for um, travel mercies that we lift up those people for as they go. And um, Father, we just ask that, that today every single one of us is good soil so that the word that is planted will go deep and take root and bear fruit, Father, for the sake of your kingdom for the sake of our growth in Jesus. And um, 
pray that you help everybody to listen carefully because, God, I just I think your word right here, this, these two verses are just jam-packed with good stuff. So we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, verses 24 and 25, Jude writes. He does, he really does, there it is. Jude writes, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. And that long sentence, it has kind of an awkward feel, I guess, having been disconnected from the stuff that we read about the last couple of weeks. Um, but it, it's basically a doxology. It, 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 it's, it's, it comes across like a spontaneous outburst of praise. Of course, we know the Holy Spirit led Jude to do this, but it's still such a, a neat thing to see. But it also sheds a bright light on three ways in which God saves believers. So if you're wondering about the sermon title, Total Salvation, okay, if you're wondering what that, what that means, I believe total salvation is precisely what God provides for those who are in Christ Jesus, okay? And so Jude begins his doxology by saying, now to him who is able. Okay, now obviously there, there's a whole lot more that we're gonna, we're, we're gonna get into about what the subject of this sentence is able to do, but first let's identify the subject. Okay, if we skip down a little further, um, then, then we'll see that Jude is referring to the only God, our Savior, through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, one thing that's pretty awesome about the Bible is that we see a lot of, of references to different persons of the triune God with the same titles and qualities attached to them, like, like Savior, Lord, and God. All three persons, in fact, if you look in Scripture, are said in some way to live inside believers, and yet they are distinct in that we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God three persons. Now here, Jude specifically refers to the Father and Son as he is pointing out the mechanism of salvation. Okay, God the Father saved us from the power and the penalty of sin. He saved us from his own wrath against our sin by sending God the Son to take our place on the cross and then raising him up from death on the third day. And the application of Christ's Blood, then, is, is that's what has the power to save sinners. And it's given entirely because of the grace and mercy of the Lord. Now, this is a free gift. This, this is based in, in faith rather than deeds. The Apostle Paul explains this more clearly in his letter to Titus chapter 3 when he says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works, done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now again, all three persons of the triune God are involved in salvation. And it's the same holy God who is the subject of Jude's praise, okay? And the same God that sovereignly provides salvation for his people. But please understand, there is more than just one type of salvation. You know, the Bible uses the root word for save in probably a dozen or more ways, 
if you go through the New Testament. But there are three specific ways in which the believer in Jesus can rest assured that God's salvation applies to him or to her. So in a sense, a Christian is saved, but is also being saved, and also will be saved. And if that's confusing, don't worry. We're, we're, we're going to unwrap this gift together because Jude alludes to all three types of salvation right here in this passage. Okay, so let's go back to verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. What does that mean? What is stumbling? Yeah, in, in its most basic form, it's tripping, right? It, 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 it's, it's staggering, it's losing your balance, okay? It's, it's no longer being upright on a firm foundation. So in a spiritual sense, what is stumbling? Backsliding, messing up, sin. Sin is stumbling. How many of us sin? Raise your hand. <laughs> if anybody doesn't have your hand up, you're a liar. Uh, and that's a sin. So uh, you need to be convicted. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and continually fall short of God's glory. Remember, that is an infinitive tense in the Greek. Okay, We all continually fall short. And yet Jude says that God is able to keep you from stumbling. Now, does that mean that you will be without sin in this life? Not according to 1 John. Okay? But does that mean that God is capable to guard, to protect you from stumbling? Absolutely He is, but we observe it incrementally. Okay? Since we are, we are finite creatures that exist within the constraints of time, we observe this process called sanctification as a timeline. I'm going backwards. Forgive me. Okay. Sanctification, it is a gradual process that necessarily occurs in the life of every Christian. I'm going to say that one more time because I want to make sure it sticks. Okay? Sanctification is a gradual process that necessarily, that means it has to happen, that necessarily occurs in the life of every Christian. Which, by the way, let's, let's define for our purpose today what a Christian is. Okay? A Christian is not a person who goes to church. Okay? A Christian, excuse me, a Christian is not a person who professes to be a Christian. A Christian is not some tribal allegiance based on being an American. It's not just belief that there is a God. By the word Christian, we're talking about a person who has placed faith in Christ and thus been born again through the Holy Spirit who has taken up residence inside them. Okay? We're going to come back in a couple minutes to define sanctification a little more clearly, but for now, let's keep going. God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless. Now, what's that talking about? That's a little bit trickier. That really is kind of hard to see, isn't it? Sorry, guys. It looked a little bit easier, a little bit clearer on my laptop. I apologize. Um, so we've already mentioned God is able to keep us from sinning, and yet we still sin, though hopefully less and less as we grow in Christ, right? So how can we be blameless if we still sin? Now this is a wonderful thing known as justification. Now this is the kind of, of salvation that I think people are most often referring to when they talk about being saved, okay? Now I don't want to get too far ahead, uh, but, but please understand, it is possible 
(laughs) for a person to be presented as blameless before God despite being a sinner. And this is the only way that that can happen. Okay? I need to make sure we are on the same page. So God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless where? Before the presence of his glory with great joy. So friends, the concept that Jude is referring to here is glorification. And again, we're, we're going to unpack these terms uh, in a couple of minutes, but I want to bring your attention to the last part of this phrase. He, he, he will bring us before his presence with great joy. Christian, ask yourself today whether you have joy in the Lord. If you don't, is that something that you would like to have? Okay, I would certainly hope so. Remember, joy, joy isn't about our circumstances. Joy is, is, is at least not just about our circumstances. Joy is, is about our relationship to the Lord. Okay? So why wait until our glorification to taste some of that joy? Or because the Greek phrasing could go either way. Ask yourself this, brother, sister, when was the, the last time you thought about the fact that you are a source of joy for your creator. Have you thought about that recently? You are a source of joy for the sovereign king of the universe. It's been pointed out that Christ endured the cross for the joy set before him. Okay, And part of that is your inclusion into his family. So th- this, is, this is a wonderful thing for us to remember. Okay, so... So now we've got these three terms up here. We're going to define them a little bit more uh, clearly. That first word, sanctification, means being conformed to the image of Christ in real time. That really is hard to see. You're right, babe. (laughs) That is kind of hard to see. Being conformed, I'm going to say it again in case you can't read it very well. Being conformed to the image of Christ in real time. Okay? Uh, this is the sense in which we are being saved because it is a process. Okay, sanctification is the progressive salvation from the power of sin as we learn to mortify the deeds of the flesh. Now, these are kind of Puritan words, but they're good words. Okay, to mortify the deeds of the flesh. In other words, as we, in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, as we kill our sinful desires, it says that in Scripture, doesn't it? Put to death. These things within you, right? So kill our sinful desires and seek to follow the Holy Spirit's influence in our walk. Of the three salvations, saved, being saved, and will be saved, being saved is the least popular because it's not a done deal. It's not something that we can just look forward to either, right? It's the ongoing one, and it's hard. Sanctification is tough. Killing sin in ourselves is difficult. And listen, last, last Monday night, I was reading Romans 13. Uh, this isn't going to be on your screen, but I encourage you to write this down, maybe even flip there in your Bibles. Because, um, you know, a lot of us are reading through the Bible in a year again this year. And, um, man, this, it just really hit me. I, I probably read the book of Romans, and, and, and I'm serious about this, between 50 and 100 times. You know, and then parts of it probably read dozens more. Because that is one of my absolute favorite books. It's, you know, when I was in... When I was in college, we had to read through it eight or nine times just in that one class. You know? I mean, so, so this, is, this is something I'm pretty familiar with, and yet sometimes God just shoves something in your face you know, in a way that you've not really experienced it before. That's what happened with verse 14 this time. Paul tells the Romans 
to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, listen, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its sinful desires. To gratify its desires. Of course, he's referring to sinful desires. He is talking about starving your sinful nature to death. Now, please understand, okay? I, I am not... Wesleyan, I, I don't believe, I'm not referring to sinful, excuse me, to sinless perfection in this life. I don't think that we can get there. The Bible's clear, we're always going to struggle. But there are different aspects of the flesh that we overcome by refusing to feed them. Okay, now I don't know how many of you guys have, have fasted in your life. Um, insert joke here. No, but it, it's, it's definitely not easy, Okay. Especially at first. Now, I'm going to be straight with you all and say it's been a long time since I've fasted more than a couple of meals. But um, there have been different times. The longest I've ever gone, and I'm not saying this, you know, it's just, so you'll know. The longest I've ever gone is three full days without eating anything at all. And even in that short period of time, I noticed some things that were very surprising. For one, I thought I'd be a lot hungrier when I finally started eating on day four. Um, honestly, the, the, the evening of day two was the worst because I was driving past all these fast food places in between the church where I was interning at and the house where I was staying. Um, and, and even, this is, it was the worst, even though on, on night three, there was a cookout at a house that we went to, and they were cooking filet mignon. Day two was still worse. I'm not kidding. By the way, I saved a bunch of filet mignon and a whole bunch of other stuff for morning four, and I only got to eat like a third of it, or half, I just couldn't, I couldn't fit it. Anyway, um, the fact is, there is a point Okay, where it gets really hard not to give in, but then after you pass that point, it gets easier. It gets easier. I honestly believe that most of us don't try hard enough to get past day two, so to speak. In our spiritual lives, we give in too quickly to the sinful desires because it's easier to do that than to starve them. But we need to learn to let those lusts go hungry. I mean, who knows, maybe some of them will starve to death if we refuse to feed them. Anyway, sanctification, the process by which the Holy Spirit of God molds us into the shape of Christ, that, that is a, a wonderful thing. And we need to be grateful for it, and we need to be thankful especially for our next word, which is justification. That is the point at which the Lord credits us as being righteous by faith. Okay, that's where he looks at us and he, he in other words, he, he attributes sinlessness to us by allowing the sacrifice of Jesus to pay for our sins in their entirety. Okay, so Jesus became sin on that cross in order that you and I might what? Become the what? The righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. This, this kind of salvation, this, this, is, this is that done deal uh, to tell us die, right Craig, did I say it right? you know, paid in full. This, this is that kind of salvation. This, this is the free gift of God that we have no part in other than receiving it, okay? Righteousness in the sight of God is credited to us by grace through faith. And this justification is what people are typically referring to when they, when they say, you know, whether someone is saved or whether they have been saved. Some people, though, they, they treat the idea of justification as a get-out-of-hell-free card that they can just keep in their pocket to whip out whenever they stand before the Lord, believing that, that they've checked all the right boxes. And normally you can tell 
you can tell who has this kind of mentality by the way that they live their life, okay? But what we see in Scripture, though, is that being truly saved results in a, a different attitude towards God and towards oneself and towards other people. And there is a resultant change in behavior, which is a sign of the Holy Spirit at work, which is a sign of what? <laughs> Sanctification. The way that we are being saved, the gradual overcoming of sin in real time, as we discussed earlier. Uh, so, so for those who have been justified, they should show evidence of being sanctified. And the pattern in the Bible would indicate that a person who is not being saved has not truly been saved. Now be, be with me here. Be with me here. Okay, this, is, this is a very biblical concept, but we also have to remember, we don't know the heart. God sees the heart. There may be fruit that we can't see yet. I want you to be aware of that. It's not that we are, we are the judge of a person's salvation. That's entirely up to God. But in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul shows both facets of salvation. I think this is important when he writes, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Now listen to this. He chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Okay, So faith brings salvation from the penalty of sin. It saves us. But the work of the Holy Spirit saves us from its power. We are being delivered from the power of sin gradually through the course of our lives. And they bring us towards the goal of the final way in which we are saved, which is glorification, which can be rightly defined as spending eternity in heaven with God in our new bodies. Okay? 1 Corinthians 15, uh, which Craig actually read from this morning in our elders' meeting. Christ is described as the firstfruits of those who have been raised from the dead. And then Paul goes on to describe why that applies to the rest of us. Okay, So if you're curious about why Christians have victory over death and how that concept you know, works, this is your chapter right here. Read 1 Corinthians 15. It's awesome. Okay, It's really long, but it's awesome. Paul talks about how we go from a corruptible body, which all of us have, okay? We go from a corruptible body, which is filled with sin and eventually dies, to an incorruptible body that's never going to die. This is the sense in which all Christians will be saved. We will be set free from our fallen flesh, and from this fallen world, we're going to be given new bodies, and we can enjoy the new heavens and the new earth with them. Amen. So again, those, those who have placed repentant faith in Christ are saved by justification. They are being saved through sanctification, and they will be saved upon glorification. Now in the meantime, we've got to keep being purified like gold in a furnace. And there is a reason, friends. There's a reason that Scripture uses that metaphor. You know, gold has to be melted at just over 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's hot. It gets melted down, and then it, it melts into a, a liquid, obviously. And, and so it's so heavy that the junk that's in it, the stuff that, that's making gold impure, it rises to the top, and it forms a layer 
of, of trash basically called dross. And then the smelter takes the gold out of the furnace and he scrapes off that layer of impurity. And then where does the gold go? Whoop, <laughs> right back in the furnace where it melts again, right? This process is repeated until all of the dross that the naked eye can see is removed. Now, I want you to just think about this for a second. How many of you feel like you're in a furnace right now? Maybe a couple? How many of you feel like you're being scraped right now? Yeah? And not just because of the preacher taking a long time. No, <laughs> no. listen, don't worry. It, it, it's, here's the thing. Just when it feels like you're able to relax, it's back in the furnace for you. That's pretty much how it goes, right? That's pretty much how our life is. The cool thing is there will always be some impurities left using this method, but once, once it's complete, they'll be almost invisible to you looking at the gold on the outside. And that is what we're supposed to be striving for, to be as pure and as mature in Christ as we possibly can be. So now, let's put all this together in one thought, okay? Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's, that's all one phrase, actually. But I want you to just notice this. Look at how this upholds the precious doctrine of the sovereignty of God. To him who is able to save totally in these three ways. He is the one from start to finish that totally saves his people. We read that this morning in 1 Peter. I want to revisit just three verses near the very beginning of that book that Brent read earlier. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Friends, is there anything that God desires to do that he cannot? No. So back to Jude. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. What, what do all these like King James churchy sounding words mean? What do they all boil down to? Yes. <laughs> I mean, think about it. Glory, majesty, dominion, authority. These are all words expressing sovereignty, which means absolute power. Now, do we have a saying about absolute power? Yes, we say that absolute power corrupts absolutely, but there's actually a very, very large exception to this rule, okay? In God's case, it doesn't corrupt at all. In fact, it is not possible for God to be corrupted. Scripture says he cannot lie. Scripture says he cannot sin. Aren't we grateful for that? Yes, so how do we know he can't sit? Let, let, let's see how, how Jude wraps up his doxology of praise here. He says, To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Why do you, why do you suppose Jude uses this language? It's so absolutist. 
you know, you may have noticed as we've gone through the book of Jude that he, he tends to, to use the number three a lot. That's kind of a major theme. He uses fours too, but mostly threes. I, I think he was led to do this by the Holy Spirit because the, the number three denotes a kind of fullness. You know, spiritually, God is, is three persons. Physically, uh, matter, you know, ten, and, and space itself, can ten, you know, basically it comprises three dimensions, right? There's, there's, there's this way and this way and this way, right? There's a totality to the number three. So, so let's break down his statement about our God who is sovereign before all time, now, and forever. Okay? There's the past, there's the present, and there's the unending future. And it's reminiscent of that beautiful passage in Romans 13 that says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Listen, if you're taking notes, I want to encourage you to write down this word, immutable. Immutable. I-M-M-U. Table. Okay? Immutable. Here's what this word means. Unchanging. Now, this is one of God's characteristics that is incommunicable. That, that means the church fathers called it that. That, that means that it is, it is a quality of God that his creatures cannot and do not share. Okay? We human beings are pretty much always either in a state of, of growth or atrophy, honestly. Where there's not really such a thing as stasis for us. So God, though, God is static. He does not change. That means he can never become any less good or, or, or loving or righteous. And he transcends time, meaning that he is still in the eternal past, he's currently in the present, and he's eternally in the future, all at once. We can't even wrap our little tiny brains around that. But that is the truth for God, which is really wonderful for us to, to contemplate, because Christians need him. We, we need him in and for and through every phase of salvation. So, so in the context of, of Christians who are saved, being saved, and, and to be saved, Jude points out that God's sovereign power and his immutability can do just that. And so this is our takeaway. Because God is totally able and he is totally faithful, believers are totally saved. Now all of this is part of his plan. Since before the foundation of the world, God had this mapped out. He saw you friend. He saw you in your absolute worst moment. And he still loved you enough to create you and to save you at immense personal cost to himself. There's a passage in Romans 8 that makes this truth kind of come alive for us. And it starts with the wonderfully comforting statement in verse 28. But then it, it continues to explain why God why God can be so confident in the establishment of his purposes in us. And here's how it goes. And we know, sorry, I got that one up there. And we know that for those who love God, you're familiar with this, right? All things work together for what? For good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Some, some words in this sound familiar, don't they? We talk about them today. But notice this. While we are stuck, while we're in the here and now, and we can't see the end for anybody, God is not constrained in that way. 
Okay, that's why each of these verbs, listen, this is important, okay? Sometimes when I mention Greek, I almost can sense people glaze, you know, maybe not. But, but listen, these are all in the aorist tense. That means they are done already. Past tense from God's perspective. This is already finished from God's point of view. And that is extremely encouraging for those of us who are being saved. But it's also confusing for those of us that are here because we see things happen in a linear fashion. We, we see non-believers turn to Jesus and we see professing Christians walk away. So I want to close with this, okay? There is a dangerous train of thought that a person can, can still fall into after coming to this realization, okay? You might say, well, if God's already got everything planned out, you know, then, then I should live however I want. Because I'm, you know, if I'm not in, in this category up here, you know, well, there's nothing I can do about it. And then if I'm saved, it doesn't matter how I live. You know, that is a really, really problematic expression. Okay? Listen, friend, living in opposition to God's commands is a good sign that you're probably not saved. I'm going to say that again. Living in opposition to God's commands is probably a good sign that you are not saved. But let me ask you this. Is there hope in Christ? Is there hope in Christ? Yes, amen, there's hope in Christ. If you're trying to obey Christ, that's, that, that's a good sign your belief is the saving kind of faith and not the alleged faith that you know, demons have, according to James 2. But listen, no matter, no matter where you fall on the continuum, Okay, You can go nowhere without faith in Jesus. That is the rock-bottom foundation required to move forward. So if you are here this morning and you're, you're on the outside, but you want to experience the total salvation of the Lord, here's what you do. You believe. What does Scripture say? They said, what work must we do to Jesus? And Jesus said, the work of God is that you believe in him who he sent. And if you believe, then what? The Bible is very clear. If you believe, you confess your faith and you be baptized according to what Scripture teaches. And if you've done that, and you're like, well, okay, I've already done those things, well, then the question is, are you looking for a church to be a part of? Because I'm not just saying this because I'm the preacher. This is a good one. I've been in a lot of churches, friends. This is a wonderful body of Christ. And the people here are, truly are a family of God. So if you're looking for a church, maybe we're it. And if we're not, find one. You need to be somewhere. You've got to be somewhere. We're called to stir one another on to love and good works. And if you've, you know, already done these things, but you're like, hey, I just need prayer. You know, I, I need a, a hug from Dave. I need... You know, somebody to, you know, to lay hands on me and pray over me, or to, if I need to just confess a sin to someone or something, you have that chance, okay? We're going to sing a song. I'm going to ask you if there's anything that you need from the Lord, something that you want to say or something that you need, then come forward.